Section 1 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Robert Louis Stevenson and Fanny Osborne, Part 1. We thank thee for this place in which we dwell, for the love that unites us, for the peace accorded us this day, for the hope with which we expect the morrow, for the health, the work, the food, and the bright skies that makes our lives delightful, for our friends in all parts of the earth, and our friendly helpers in this foreign isle. Give us courage and gaiety and the quiet mind. Spare to us our friends, soften to us our enemies. Bless us, if it may be, in all our innocent endeavors. If it may not, give us the strength to encounter that which is to come, that we be brave in peril, constant in tribulation, temperate in wrath, and in all changes of fortune, and down to the gates of death, loyal and loving to one another. Valuma Prayers There is a libel leveled at the Scotch, and encouraged, I am very sorry to say, by Chauncey Depew, when he told of approaching the docks in Glasgow and seeing the people on shore convulsed with laughter, and was told that their mirth was the result of one of his jokes told the year before, the point just being perceived. Bearing on the same line, we have the legend that the adage, He laughs best who laughs last, was the invention of a Scotchman who was endeavouring to explain away a popular failing of his countrymen. An adage seems to be a statement the reverse of which is true, or not. In all the realm of letters, where can be found anything more delightfully whimsical and deliciously humorous than James Barry's Peter Pan? And as a writer of exquisite humour, as opposed to English wit, that other Scotchman, Robert Louis Stevenson, stands supreme. To Robert Louis, life was altogether too important a matter to be taken seriously. The quality of fine fooling shown in the creation of a mythical character called John Libble remained with Stevenson to the end of his days. Stevenson never knew the value of money because he was not brought up to earn money. Very early he was placed on a small allowance, which he found could be augmented by maternal embezzlements and the kindly cooperation of pawnbrokers. Once on a trip from home with his cousin, he found they lacked just five shillings of the required amount to pay their fare. They boarded the train and paid as far as they could. The train stopped at Crewe fifteen minutes for lunch. Lunch is a superfluity if you haven't had the money to pay for it, but stealing a ride in Scotland is out of the question. Robert Lewis hastily took a pair of new trousers from his valise and ran up the main street of the town, anxiously looking for a pawn shop. There, at the end of the thoroughfare, he saw the three glittering welcome balls. He entered, out of breath, threw the trousers down, and asked for five shillings. "'What name?' asked the pawnbroker. "'John Libble,' was the reply, given without thought. "'How do you spell it?' Two B's.' He got the five shillings and hastened back to the station, where his cousin Bob was anxiously awaiting him. Robert Lewis did not have to explain that his little run up the street was a financial success. That much was understood. But what pleased him the most was that he had discovered a new man, a very important man, John Libble, the man who made pawnbrokers possible, the universal client of the craft. You mean patient, not client, interposed Bob. They invented the word libellian, meaning one with pawnbroker inclinations. Libellados meant the children of John Libble, and so it went. The boys had an old font of type, and they busied themselves printing cards for John Libble, giving his name and supposed business and address. These they gave out on the street, slipped under doors, or placed mysteriously in the hands of fussy old gentlemen. Finally, the boys got to ringing doorbells and asking if John Libble lived within. They sought Libble at hotels, stopped men on the street, and asked them if their name wasn't John Libble, and when told no, apologized profusely and declared the resemblance most remarkable. They tied up packages of ashes or sawdust, very neatly labeled, compliments of John Libble, and dropped them in the street. 
This was later improved on by sealing the package and marking it Gold Dust or Assayer's Office from John Libel. These packages would be placed along the street, and the youthful jokers would watch from doorways and see the packages slyly slipped into pockets, or if the finder were honest, he would hurry away to the assayer's office with his precious find to claim a reward. The end of this particular kind of fun came when the two boys walked into a shop and asked for John Libel. The clerk burst out laughing and said, You are the Stevenson boys who have fooled the town. Jokes explained ceased to be jokes, and the young men sorrowfully admitted that Libel was dead and should be buried. Robert Lewis was an only son, and alternately was disciplined and then humored, as only sons usually are. His father was a civil engineer in the employ of the Northern Lights Company, and it was his business to build and inspect lighthouses. At his office used to congregate a motley collection of lighthouse keepers, retired sea captains, mates out of a job, and with these sad dogs of the sea, little Robert used to make close and confidential friendships. When he was yet a child, he made the trip to Italy with his mother, and brought back from Rome and from Venice sundry crucifixes, tear bottles, and St. Joseph's, all duly blessed, and these he sold to his companions at so many whacks apiece. That is to say, the purchaser had to pay for the gift by accepting on his bare hand a certain number of wax with a leather strap. If the recipient winced, he forfeited the present. The boy was flat-chested and spindle-shanked, and used to bank on his physical weakness when lessons were to be evaded. He was two years at the Edinburgh Academy where he reduced the cutting of lectures and recitations to a system, and substituted Dumas and Scott for more learned men who prepared books for the sole purpose of confounding boys. As for making an engineer of the young man, the stern, practical father grew utterly discouraged when he saw mathematics shelved for Smollett. Robert was then put to studying law with a worthy barrister. Law is business, and to suppose that a young man who religiously spent his month's allowance the day it was received could make a success at the bar, shows the vain delusion that often fills the parental head. Stevenson's essay, A Defense of Idlers, shows how no time is actually lost, not even that which is idled away, but this is a point that is very hard to explain to ambitious parents. The traditional throwing overboard of the sun the day he is 21, allowing him to sink or swim, survive or perish, did not prevail with the Stevensons. At 22, Robert Lewis still had his one guinea a month, besides what he could cajole, beg, or borrow from his father and mother. He grew to watch the mood of his mother, and has recorded that he never asked favors of his father before dinner. At 23, he sold an essay for two pounds, and referred gaily to himself as one of the most popular and successful essayists in Great Britain. He was still a child in spirit, dependent upon others for support. He looked like a girl with his big, wide-open eyes and long hair. As for society, in the society sense, he abhorred it, and would have despised it if he had despised anything. The soft platitudes of people who win distinction by being nothing, doing nothing, and saying nothing except what has been said before, moved him to mocking mirth. From childhood, he was a society rebel. He wore his hair long because society men had theirs cut close. His short velvet coat, negligee shirt, and wide-awake hat were worn for no better reason. His long cloak gave him a look of haunting mystery, and made one think of a stage hero or a robber you read of in books. Motives are mixed, and foolish folks who ask questions about why certain men do certain things do not know what certain men do certain things, because they wish to, and leave to others the explanation of the whyness and the wherefore. People who always dress, talk, and act alike do so for certain reasons well understood, but the man who does differently from the mass is not quite so easy to analyze and formulate. The feminine quality in Robert Lewis's nature shows itself in that he fled the company of women, and with them held no converse if he could help it. He never wrote a love story, and once told Crockett that if he ever dared write one, it would be just like the lilac sunbonnet. Yet it will not do to call Stevenson effeminate, even if he was feminine. 
he had a courage that outmatched his physique. Once in a cafe in France, a Frenchman made the remark that the English were a nation of cowards. The words had scarcely passed his lips before Robert Louis flung the back of his hand in the Frenchman's face. Friends interposed and cards were passed, but the fire-eating Frenchman did not call for his revenge or apology, much to the relief of Robert Louis. Plays were begun, stories blocked out, and great plans made by Robert Louis and his cousin for passing a hazard to literature and taking it in tow. When Robert Louis was in his 24th year, he found a copy of Leaves of Grass, and he and his cousin Bob reveled in what they called a genuine book. They heard that Michael Rossetti was to give a lecture on Whitman in a certain drawing room. The young men attended, without invitation, and walked in coatless, just as they had heard that Walt Whitman appeared at the Astor House in New York when he went by appointment to meet Emerson. After hearing Rossetti discuss Whitman, they got the virus fixed in their systems. They walked up and down Princess Street in their shirt sleeves, and saw fair ladies blush and look the other way. Next, they tried sleeveless jerseys for streetwear, and speculated to just how much clothing they would have to abjure before women would entirely cease to look at them. The hectic flush was upon the cheek of Robert Lewis, and people said he was distinguished. "'Death admires me, even if the publishers do not,' he declared. The doctors gave orders that he should go south, and he seized upon the suggestion, and wrote, "'Ordered south,' and started. Bob went with him, and after a trip through Italy— they arrived at Barbizon to see the scene of the Angelus and look upon the land of Millet, Millet, whom Michael Rossetti called the Whitman of Art. Bob was an artist. He could paint, write, and play the flageolet. Robert Lewis declared that his own particular velvet jacket and big coat would save him at Barbizon, even if he could not draw any to speak of. In art, the main thing is to look the part, or else paint superbly well, said Robert Lewis. The young men got accommodations at Ciron's. This was an inn for artists, artists of slender means, and the patrons at Ciron's held that all genuine artists had slender means. The rate was five francs a day for everything, with a modest prorated charge for breakage. The rules were not strict, which prompted Robert Lewis to write the great line, When formal matters are laid aside, true courtesy is the more rigidly exacted. Ciron's was an inn, but it was really much more like an exclusive club, for if the boarders objected to any particular arrival, two days was the outside limit of his stay. Batinsky, the bounder, was interviewed, and the early coach took the objectionable one away forever. And yet, no artist was ever sent away from Ciron's, no matter how bad his work or how threadbare his clothes. If he was a worker, if he really tried to express beauty, all of his eccentricities were pardoned and his pot-boiling granted absolution. But the would-be bohemian, or the man in search of a thrill, or if in any manner the party on probation suggested that Madame Ciron was not a perfect cook, and Monsieur Ciron was not a genuine Grand Duke in disguise, he was interviewed by Bailey Bodmer, the local headsman of the clan, and plainly told that escape lay in flight. At Ciron's there were several Americans, among them being Whistler. Nevertheless, Americans as a class were voted objectionable, unless they were artists, or perchance would-bees who supplied unconscious entertainment by an excess of boasting. Women, unless accompanied by a certified male escort, were not desired under any circumstances. And so matters stood when the two Stensons, the average Frenchman could not say Stevenson, were respectively exalted ruler and chief counselor of Ciron's. At that time, one must remember that the chambermaid and the landlady might be allowed to mince across the stage, but men took the leading parts in life. The cousins had been away on a three days tramping tour through the forest. When they returned, they were informed that something terrible had occurred. A woman had arrived, an American woman with a daughter aged, say, 14, and a son, 12. They had paid a month in advance and were duly installed by Ciron. Ciron was summoned and threatened with deposition. The poor man shrugged his shoulders in hopeless despair. Mon Dieu! How could he help it? 
The Stensons were not at hand to look after their duties. The woman had paid for accommodations, and money in an art colony was none too common. But Bailey Bodmer, had he too been derelict? Bailey appeared, his boasted courage limp, his prowess pricked. He asked to have a man pointed out, any two or three men, and he would see that the early stage should not go away empty. But a woman, a woman in half-mourning, was different. And besides, this was a different woman. She was an American, of course, but probably against her will. Her name was Osborne, and she was from San Francisco. She spoke good French and was an artist. One of the Stevensons sneezed. The other took a lofty and supercilious attitude of indifference. It was tacitly admitted that the woman should be allowed to remain, her presence being a reminder to Siren of remissness and to Bailey of cowardice. So the matter rested, the Siren Club being in temporary disgrace, the unpleasant feature too distasteful to even discuss. As the days passed, however, it was discovered that Mrs. Osborne did not make any demands upon the club. She kept her own counsel, rose early and worked late, and her son and daughter were very well behaved and inclined to be industrious in their studies and sketching. It was discovered one day that Robert Lewis had gotten lunch from the Siron kitchen and was leading the Osborne family on a little excursion to the wood back of Rosa Bonner's. Self-appointed scouts who happened to be sketching over that way came back and reported that Mrs. Osborne was seen painting, while Robert Lewis sat on a rock nearby and told pirate tales to Lloyd, the twelve-year-old boy. A week later, Robert Lewis had one of his bad spells, and he told Bob to send for Mrs. Osborne. Nobody laughed after this. It was silently and unanimously voted that Mrs. Osborne was a good fellow, and soon she was enjoying all the benefits of the Siren Club. When a frivolous member suggested that it be called the Siren Club, he was met with an oppressive stillness and black looks. Mrs. Osborne was educated, amiable, witty, and wise. She evidently knew humanity and was on good terms with sorrow, although sorrow never subdued her. What her history was, nobody sought to inquire. When she sketched, Robert Lewis told pirate tales to Lloyd. The Siron Club took on a degree of sanity that it had not known before. Little entertainments were given now and then, where Mrs. Osborne read to the company from an unknown American poet, Joaquin Miller by name, and Bob expounded Walt Whitman. The Americans as a people evidently were not wholly bad, at least there was hope for them. Bob began to tire of Barbizon and finally went back to Edinburgh alone. Arriving there, he had to explain why Robert Lewis did not come too. Robert Lewis had met an American woman, and they seemed to like each other. The parents of Robert Lewis did not laugh. They were grieved. Their son, who had always kept himself clear from feminine entanglements, was madly, insanely in love with a woman, the mother of two grown-up children, and a married woman, and an American at that, was too much. Just how they expostulated and how much will never be known. They declined to go over to France to see her, and they declined to have her come to see them, a thing Mrs. Osborne probably would not have done, at that time anyway. But there was a comfort in this. Their son was in much better health, and several of his articles had been accepted by the great London magazines. So three months went by, when suddenly and without notice Robert Lewis appeared at home and in good spirits. As for Mrs. Osborne, she had sailed for America with her two children, and the elder Stevensons breathed more freely. On August 10, 1879, Robert Lewis sailed from Glasgow for New York on the steamship Devonia. It was a sudden move, taken without the consent of his parents or kinsmen. The young man wrote a letter to his father, mailing it at the dock. When the missive reached the father's hands, that worthy gentleman was unspeakably shocked and terribly grieved. He made frantic attempts to reach the ship before it had passed out of the Clyde and rounded into the North Sea, but it was too late. He then sent two telegrams to the port of Londonderry, one to Lewis begging him to return at once as his mother was very sick, and the other message to the captain of the ship ordering him to put the willful son ashore, bag and baggage. 
The things we do in fear and haste are at the helm are usually wrong, and certainly do not mirror our better selves. Thomas Stevenson was a Scotchman, and the Scotch, a certain man has told us, are the owners of a trinity of bad things, Scotch whiskey, Scotch obstinacy, and Scotch religion. What the first-mentioned article has to do with the second and the third, I do not know, but certain it is that the second and the third are hopelessly intertwined, this according to Ian McLaren, who ought to know. This obstinacy in the right proportion constitutes will, and without will, life languishes and projects die a warning. But mixed up with this religious obstinacy is a goodly jigger of secretiveness, and in order to gain his own point, the religion of the owner does not prevent him from prevarication. In Margaret O'Gilvie, that exquisite tribute to his mother by Barry, the author shows us a most religious woman who was well up to the head of the Sephira class. The old lady had been reading a certain book, and there was no reason why she should conceal that fact. The son suddenly enters and finds his mother sitting quietly looking out the window. She was suspiciously quiet. The son questions her somewhat as follows. What are you doing, mother? Nothing, was the answer. Have you been reading? Do I look like it? Why, yes, the book on your lap. What book? The book under your apron. And so does this sweetly charming and deeply religious old lady prove her fitness in many ways to membership in the Liars League. She secretes, prevaricates, quibbles, lays petty traps and mouses all day long. The eleventh commandment, thou shalt not snoop, evidently had never been called to her attention, and even her gifted son is seemingly totally unaware of it. So Thomas Stevenson, excellent man that he was, turned to subterfuge, and telegraphed his runaway son that his mother was sick, appealing to his love for his mother to lure him back. However, children do not live with their forebears for nothing. They know their parents just as well as their parents know them. Robert Lewis reasoned that it was quite as probable that his father lied as that his mother was sick. He yielded to the stronger attraction and stuck to the ship. He was sailing to America because he had received word that Fanny Osborne was very ill. Half a world divided them, but attraction to lovers is an inverse ratio to the square of the distance. He must go to her. She was sick and in distress. He must go to her. The appeals of his parents, even their dire displeasure, the ridicule of relatives, all were as not. He had some scotch obstinacy of his own. Every fiber of his being yearned for her. She needed him. He was going to her. Of course, his action in thus sailing away to a strange land alone was a shock to his parents. He was a man in years, but they regarded him as but a child, as indeed he was. He had never earned his own living. He was frail in body, idle, erratic, peculiar. His flashing wit and subtle insight into the heart of things were quite beyond his parents. In this he was a stranger to them. Their religion to him was gently amusing, and he congratulated himself on not having inherited it. He had a pride, too, but Graham Balfour said it was French pride, not the Scotch brand. He viewed himself as part of the passing procession. His own velvet jacket and marvelous manifestations and neckties added interest to the show, and that he admired his own languorous ways, there is no doubt. His Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he declared in sober earnest, in which was concealed a half-smile, was autobiography. And this is true, for all good things that every writer writes are a self-confession. Stevenson was a hundred men in one, and his years were anything from sixteen to eighty, says Lloyd Osborne in his memoirs. But when a letter came from San Francisco saying Fanny Osborne was sick, all of that dilatory, procrastinating, gently trifling quality went out of his soul, and he was possessed by one idea. He must go to her. The captain of the ship had no authority to follow the order of an unknown person and put him ashore, so the telegram was given to the man to whom it referred. He read the message, smiled dreamily, tore it into bits, and dropped it on the tide. 
and the ship turned her prow toward America and sailed away. Now this was the man who had no firmness, no decision, no will. Aye, heretofore he had only lacked motive. Now love supplied it. End of chapter 1